Students have been trained, we've all been trained, that uh, in schools there's someone at the front who knows everything, who knows everything that you need to know and will tell you what it is and when you need to know it. And that's how it works. And we're trying to sort of blow that model apart and say, you know, you, though you're much shorter than I am, haven't been here as long as I have, you have some inherent wisdom and knowledge I don't have. So why shouldn't we link up together, network together and have a, a collaborative environment? You can become peers, we can become co-teachers together, we can all teach each other. And once they realize you're offering them that empowerment, control over their own learning destiny, there's no going back. Welcome to episode 168 of Be The Drop, a weekly interview podcast sharing stories from people who inspire and motivate others to help you learn how to tell your story. I'm Amelia Veal, Director at Narrative Marketing and firm believer in the superpower of storytelling. As a mum and a marketer, I'm fascinated with how we connect to one another as humans, how we learn, how we relate and how we grow into being the best versions of ourselves. But who defined best? And how do we instill this desire into our children? As adults, how do we avoid being derailed from that path? John Hunter is an educator of more than 40 years and the inventor of the World Peace Game, a fascinating child-centered, collaborative learning-based board game available in 36 countries. The game encourages children to develop effective communication and conflict resolution skills while empowering them to experiment and make their own decisions. In today's episode of Be The Drop, John discusses the importance of teaching children self-empowerment and compassion. He reflects on how his supervisor's unwillingness to tell him which path to take ended up being the space he needed to develop his life's work. This is John's version of Be The Drop. This interview was recorded at Annesley Junior School by Narrative Marketing whilst delivering a video project. You can check out the video via links in the show notes or head to our YouTube channel. John's program at Annesley was sponsored by the Embassy of the United States, Canberra. I'm John Hunter. I'm the inventor of the World Peace Game Geopolitical Simulation. It's about 41 years old and I'm uh, the primary facilitator of it in about 36 countries now. So you've been running this for 41 years? Yeah, it was one of the things I've done as an educator. It was actually the very first thing I did because I didn't know what else to do. You know, my supervisor said, uh, what do you want to do? And that was a baffling statement because I wanted direction. I wanted a manual. I wanted a mandate. But she refused to give me one. And what I thought was a disaster turned out to be the greatest opening, the greatest open space she could have given me as a young educator. And so I simply asked my students what they loved. And they loved board games. In 1978, we didn't have anything else. So we built uh, the World Peace Game with our curriculum, the games that they loved, and problem solving all folded in. And we essentially deliberately throw them into chaos. We give them all 50 interlocking world crises at the same time. We ask them to solve them under a time limit. And we tell them the only way they can solve it is to figure out if they can pay for it, deal with the consequences, and if it makes sense. And the facilitator, the teacher, the adult, cannot help them. I cannot guide them. I cannot answer questions. I cannot direct them. They teach and learn themselves. They have to depend upon each other naturally for their own survival. 
so they can even make it through this. They, they cannot do it individually. They learn very quickly after their initial despair of failing. They learn that I must reach out to others, that others are essential to my survival. And so it's a natural uh, arising of, of collaboration and compassion, really, without me having to teach it because that's what they know intuitively they must do to save each other, to save themselves, and to ultimately save the earth. And it's interesting. I know that when you talk about the game, you talk about the fact that it's kind of designed for failure. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, the game is designed to massively fail completely. It really is a laboratory for kids to learn how to do that because they will have to in life. Life as a part of it, it has failure, it has success, but we don't train for failure. We train for success only in our society today. So when someone fails, they don't know what to do. They have no way to uh, coherently get through it and become and rise above it. And so we actually allow them in a safe and appropriate environment to experiment with that and learn how life works. The game really is an emulation of, of life. And so the practice of going through these difficult situations, being fully human in the process, and coming through the other side in a safe way, they can essentially practice how to live. Mm. And I think, you know, in a traditional education space, you know, learning from books and learning, you know, a certain things of, of this is what happens and so this is what is, doesn't necessarily add that, that line of learning about failure and how, how, to, how to tap into our human side and how we don't deal with that from an ego perspective or whatever it is, the parameters around us as people. So how important do you think that is then to add this to a traditional education stream? Well, I, I don't know that we're actually trying to um, extend the, the traditional model so much as really just simply open up to what the child is and how children actually work and learn. Um, Montessori, I think, is a sort of re reflection of what we try to do, which is child-centered, child-driven learning and education. And so this idea of presenting external content and giving it to the child and thinking that's education, I think I believed that when I first started teaching. But I found that's really not education, and it's certainly not viable today in the 21st century. You know, they've got the sum total of human knowledge in their pocket in their phones. So what do they need me for, you know? I've got to do something beyond just educating for content and information. And what I've found, what the children have taught me over 40-some years, is the real point of education, is what kind of people, what kind of human being we can become. They discover that compassion for other beings and themselves and each other is the essential key. So the real assessment is not at the end of the game, who got an A or B. The real assessment is 30 or 40 years from now. And I've lived long enough to see some of those students come back. I was just about to say that. So, you know, you've got students 30, 40 years. Do, do you connect with them and what is their feedback? It's the most bittersweet thing when you're a teacher because you're working with the kids and you get your heart and soul into them for a period of time, a year, semester, two years, whatever. And then they leave and then you may never see them again. You just don't know. And so you lay awake at night sometimes, you see their faces go through your mind, you wonder what happened to this one, what happened to that one, and it's a constant thing with the teacher, what happened to my people? And so when they come back, it's such an overwhelming joy, you know? You see them as they were, and those faces that have changed, you can still see the essence, yet they've changed, and they come back to see you, and that's such a joyful feeling for a teacher. And then if they tell you that, what you've shown me, Mr. Hunter, what we experienced in that classroom has made this difference to me. You know, you feel like you've reached through time, you've reached through generations, maybe with just a simple gesture one day in a classroom. You actually feel like you've changed them, maybe, and sometimes I tell you that 
what you've taught them, they teach their children and their grandchildren, you really feel like you're reaching 50 years ahead just by your one model in the classroom one day sometimes. Oh, wow, that resonates with me. One of my favorite sayings is a waterfall begins with one drop. So then you, you set up challenges within the game. The format of the game is in, its, in a way a challenge in itself because the students need to lead it. You know, why is that such an important component? Well, you know, students have been trained, we've all been trained that uh, in schools, there's someone at the front who knows everything and knows everything that you need to know and will tell you what it is and when you need to know it. And that's how it works. And we're trying to sort of blow that model apart and say, you know, you, though you're much shorter than I am, haven't been here as long as I have, you have some inherent wisdom and knowledge I don't have. So why shouldn't we link up together, network together, and have a, a collaborative environment? You can become peers. We can become co-teachers together. We can all teach each other. And once they realize you're offering them that empowerment, control over their own learning destiny, there's no going back. They can't change their minds. They can't unlearn that. They say, this teacher has allowed me to be in collaboration with what I'm going to learn and how. Why would I ever give that up and expect somebody to tell me what to do from now on? Adults don't expect that. We want that freedom. So we allow kids and the learning just exponentially expands because they've got an investment. They have control. They have some desire that they can actually work with their own passion in the learning. We say the World Peace Game is built around the students' passions. It's basically a toy store on steroids. So we know that's a great attractor, toys and playing. But we use those characteristics that children have to fold in curriculum that we know they must know, they must learn. And they believe that they're playing, they're having fun, they're doing their own thing. But we know that there's learning inherent in it because we've arranged for that environment to occur. And I think sometimes as adults, we forget the importance of play. Oh yeah, don't we though? And we all like to play. We forget that because we work so hard, we believe that we have to work hard to be good. And we work hard, everything will be fine. If we play, we're probably not gonna have a good time. We're gonna waste time, we're gonna lose. We're not gonna be really living well. But uh, uh, play is an essential part of almost living every living being's life. And we have designed it so that we think play is not a good thing. It's just a question of balance, you know. We can't play all the time, but if we work all the time, what happens? We burn out, we die early. So we've got to figure out a way to be relaxed in both sides of our life, the play and the work, and that we can, we can enjoy both sides equally, I think. Mm, well, and I think that comes out in the game as well, because one of those three rules is, you know, can you afford it? You know, so that you're bringing in, obviously, within the play component, some very real world, and potentially I would, you know, sort of think that sometimes some of those real world components that we don't give our children responsibility oh, for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think we have a view that children are not capable, that they shouldn't have or can't do. And of course, they do have limitations sometimes, I mean, physically and mentally, and they just haven't come along so far. But they have much more capability than we give them credit for. And so in the World Peace Game, we have the three rules, the three standards, as you mentioned. They can do anything they want if they can afford to pay for it, if they can deal with the consequences of their choices, and if it makes sense. And the word sense, they have to determine themselves what makes sense. But by having those three guidelines, it really opens them up to experiment, to learn experientially what actually works in life. They're not penalized for having a wrong view temporarily. They can try it and see if it works. And if it doesn't, they can adjust. We say guess and adjust, actually. But in schools and environments like the World Peace Game, you're allowed to 
to make mistakes, to guess and adjust. In the real world, you're penalizing for not being right on every time. Not always, of course, but the fact that you have that fear that you must not make a mistake, that you cannot be wrong, just makes your life so small and so pinched and so tired. And so we're trying to just train them in this, this open-ended way, this open space way, to try and not be afraid of trying and to see what happens. And the underlying thing is, of course, the compassion is there, so they know they're going to be safe. They know things are going to be okay for them in our environment. And maybe even they develop an attitude that things are going to be all right in life. And no matter the difficulty, ultimately, they can get through. And I think sometimes there's that fear of the unknown too. And within the game, there seems to be a lot of unknown. Well, you know, in real life, if we really are honest with ourselves, we never know what's going to happen the very next moment. There's a complete unknown existence around us all the time. But we routinize ourselves, routinize ourselves, so we don't have to pay attention to the great unknown. But if we really face moment to moment, we're going to have a very fresh, open approach because we don't know what's going to happen. Children are closer to that understanding, I think, anyway. And the game allows them to continue that, but in a productive way, that they can actually get something done with that freshness, that freedom, that openness, that unknowing. We have a saying in the, in the World Peace Game that uh, the World Peace Game is learning to live and work comfortably in the unknown, to stay in a state of unknown, to forestall closure for a long time, to hold multiple perspectives at once in your mind at the same time, and to be able to hold off on making a firm, concrete decision until you need to. You can live in ambiguity and not be suffering because of it. You know, I love the concept of that, but I understand that that's difficult, you know? I mean, I like, I'm a bit of a creature that has it sometimes. Like, mm. Well, life has, every life and all lives have suffering and challenge in them. There's no getting around it. So the difficulty is going to be there. It's going to come. It's inherent in being alive and existing. So it's a question of, do I want to wrestle with the difficulty or do I simply want to wait for it to happen? Mm. You know, if I wait for it to happen, it certainly will. I have no control. I live in fear. But if I assume things are going to be great, things are going to be difficult, let me meet them both equally, openly, and see what happens, then there's a sort of ease in a way because you're meeting the difficulty, you know. In the World Peace Game, we, have a, we do a, a daily reading from Sun Tzu's The Art of War. And you may think it's a book about war, but really it's a book about how to avoid it or get out of it quickly, written by a Chinese general, you know, a couple of centuries ago. And I read a little passage, we don't discuss it, the students simply digest it in their own in quiet for two minutes, maybe three minutes, then we start play. What we're doing is trying to build in a regular habit of creating an empty space where students get to make their own meaning of what they think things are. Because you know, there are billion dollar industries and their sole mission is using and filling up every second of every child's life. And children can be completely occupied. I had a 15 year old come to me and say, John Hunter, I wanted to tell you, uh, I love this technology stuff, but I can't survive without it. I have no friends, no community, no life without being plugged in 24 hours a day. And I hate it. I hate it because I can't have my own thought ever. I can't have an independent individual thought because somebody's already thought it for me. And I've got to react to that. So we're trying to create some space where students get to have their own thoughts and make meaning of them. You know, students have Madison Avenue, they got Silicon Valley, they got Hollywood, creating their own imagination scape for them. 
But when do they ever have a chance to create their own imagination escape without Harry Potter coming in, without Darth Vader coming in? You know, they, they, that whole imagination they have has been colonized by somebody else's imagination. So we're trying to clear a space so they can reimagine as we used to do when we were kids when we had no television, for example. Some of you might remember that time, I don't know. <laughs> and that space, that, those skills, how important do you think of, are they as foundational skills for life? You know, having the space for create, your own creative thought. Uh, it seems fundamental to me as a, to be human that way. I mean, we've got various ways of being human in the 21st century, but I think the, the human that can have the most uh, wonderful quality life, the human that can be the most compassionate, caring, sensitive, responsive human being, the human that can have the most creativity and realize that creativity has to have space. If it's filled up with watching everybody else's YouTube videos, when are you ever going to create your own way of life? Not YouTube video, but your way of life. But I know that in the game, we're just trying to build in the habit of having space, creating space, making space. So when they leave me, they remember, well, it takes just a moment before I plunge in and do this, because we did that in the World Peace Game. We took a moment before we started dealing with the world's crises, and it worked out a little bit better. Well, I think that's a pretty good way to finish. <laughs> you, you started. Thank you so much, John. <laughs> Thanks for joining me for another episode of Be The Drop. Don't forget to subscribe in order to ensure you never miss out on one of our weekly episodes. Be The Drop is produced by Narrative Marketing, where we believe that stories connect individuals and that powerful storytelling can positively impact the world. To unleash your storytelling superpower, visit narrativemarketing.com.au or check out our social links in the show notes. To contact me directly with any specific comments you have, you can email me via amelia at narrativemarketing.com.au. And don't forget that whilst a task or challenge may seem overwhelming, a waterfall begins with one drop and look what comes from that.